Welcome to episode two of the Beyond the Lectern podcast. I'm Jason Lodge. And I'm Molly Dollinger. In this episode, we spoke with Dr. Agnes Bosenkett. Uh, Agnes is a senior teaching fellow in the Faculty of Human Sciences at Macquarie University. So in this episode, we're going to discuss what is a curriculum. So without further ado, here we go. Agnes, welcome. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I guess the obvious question to ask first is uh, the curriculum. That's just a unit outline, isn't it? It might be for some people. All right. So can you give us a sense of, we're obviously talking about this paper today. Can you give us a sense of where you sort of started with this and, and thinking more carefully about the way that uh, people actually think about curriculum in a higher ed context? Yes, so I co-authored this paper with my colleague Sharon Fraser um, and it was published 10 years ago. So at the time, there seemed to be fairly limited discussion of curriculum in higher education contexts. And, you know, as people will read in the paper, even where people had quite complex and nuanced understandings, they still said, oh, I wouldn't use that word, curriculum. Um, I think we've, we've moved on from that. I think the aim of the paper was to try and um, investigate what academics understood to be the curriculum, and we identified four um, understandings. Then we defined what curriculum change looked like at those levels, and then we talked about the roles of the teachers and the students in those different conceptions. But I think where we started that conversation was um, around what's your understanding of curriculum. I don't think that question is so relevant anymore. I think uh, people have far more uh, thorough experiences of curriculum change and development. And I think universities are using that terminology a lot more than 10 to 15 years ago. So there's more of a vocabulary around curriculum change now. Okay, so you're saying that you think people have a more holistic way of thinking about curriculum because of these kind of changes at a university level that they're forcing sort of curriculum redevelopment or is it still that, that people sort of conceptualise it even though they're talking about curriculum redevelopment as oh yeah that's the stuff that appears in the handbook and stuff that's in a syllabus document so you think it's forcing people to think more holistically about it? Not necessarily. Right. <laughs> it depends on the way in which your institution drives curriculum change. I think it's very easy for institutions when they are driving curriculum change, to focus on the product, to focus on rearranging the parts and the bits of paper and the way things connect. I did actually think about um, that question myself. I thought, are institutions now performing a more process-focused approach to curriculum change? Um, in some ways, yes, I would say they are. In some ways, no. I think the way in which we want to um, modularise teaching is actually a very product-driven notion. You know, breaking up teaching into this section and this section and this section um, that can all be discrete parts actually works against that more holistic view. Um, the, in some ways, I think universities are a bit more process-focused. I think we have learned things over the last 10 years because we probably worry less over the language we're using and more about what our intentions are. Have you seen a shift recently with teachers by thinking of curriculum as sort of content-based knowledge to also thinking about these 21st century skills and internationalization of curriculum and things like that? Do you think teachers are accounting for that more? Yes, in some ways. 
So with that type of aspect of intended curriculum, where you've got graduate attributes, for instance, I think we try to do a couple of different things at once that don't always work nicely together. We are trying to have a very market-driven employability agenda going on where we do think about the skills students need in a possible future career that may not exist yet. But we're also trying to very much have this social reform agenda with graduate attributes. And the social reform agenda is things like um, our students are ethical, our students are global citizens, our students you know, are sustainable. And these things are not always compatible. So there are a number of contestations in the curriculum at that level where it's not working that well. The other aspect of it is to what extent students are partners or students are involved in curriculum development, which is very much the higher two you know, um, levels in this paper. I think we sometimes do that well, but for the most part, it's easier for universities when teachers drive the curriculum. It's also easier for universities if sessional staff, for example, are not involved in the development of it. So I do think we tend away from involving students and even our own teaching staff, who are sessional and casual, from being involved in the development of the curriculum. I think the tendency with universities and the sorts of imperatives we have now around measuring performance and quality assurance and audit type questions means that we need to determine curricula with longer time frames in mind. So, you know, if you want to teach a course in three years time, you need to have already decided what your assessment tasks are, what your learning outcomes are, what the, you know, word limits of tasks are and the weightings and things like that. So we don't enable students to generate that stuff in the same way in which we might do ideally. But that said, there's lots of people doing wonderful work with students as partners. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily captured by institutions at that intended level. So the framework I'm talking about with curriculum that I now find very useful is that intended, enacted and experienced. And that's from Marsh and Willis, and it's the intended curriculum is what the institution says the curriculum is. You know, that's your graduate attributes, your university mission, your those high-level thinking about this is what we are teaching. The and it might be your teaching and learning strategy and all of that stuff. The enacted curriculum is what your teachers are actually teaching, which, as you can see, can be a bit different from what your intended curriculum is. And then your experience curriculum is what the students are actually learning. And again, it can be very different from what the teachers are doing and what the institution is doing. So I find that a really fra useful framework for thinking about those levels of curriculum. So I think excellent work is being done at the experience curriculum level. It's not always being recognised and rewarded at the other levels. So there's a, there's a really tricky balance there between the sorts of things that are are kind of impacted in a structural way on how the curriculum is, is you know, figured out and what, what's actually done there. I guess part of that is from the university, part of that's also going to be from accrediting bodies and, you know, other groups that have some sort of say over what actually gets represented there. And part of what you're saying, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that there is, there is necessarily a kind of lag because these processes take a really long time to bed down and therefore to a degree particularly sessional staff but you know everybody who is involved in the delivery of the teaching is kind of hamstrung by a lot of these things in that 
Um, they've got these things in place from such a long period of time, you know, perhaps several years back, and they're realising that some elements of those sorts of things are not working as well as they could. But it's really difficult to then go ahead and, and change them, particularly for sessionals. So do you, do you think there's some way that that will get resolved or is this sort of something that we're going to be stuck with for a while longer? I mean, what's your sense of that? I think it's something that can be resolved. I, think, I don't think we're there yet. I think um, universities differ in the level of flexibility they will allow their teaching staff. Um, at my institution, you can't change assessment without getting approval from a standards and quality committee. And that's meant to be, even in the case of fairly minor changes. Now, I sit on that committee, so I do see what comes before us. And I do think there's an important role of oversight there, because often the people on this committee are the only ones seeing what assessment looks like across a whole department. You know, in an ideal world, the way in which curriculum would be developed would be through a sort of dialogue between teachers and staff and students. The sorts of processes that people are talking about here, but really what people are talking about at these levels C and D, where it is a dialogue, is almost an act of resistance against the structures of the university. It's like, this is, this curriculum is this living thing, I'm enacting this and I'm just ticking the boxes where I need to and I'm filling in the forms where I need to. Um, People are doing something with curriculum that is really based on the relationship with students and is really exciting, but is not um, this is, is just only just meeting the university's requirements. Yeah, I, I think there's an interesting tension in there, in that um, particularly when you start out teaching, and it was certainly this this way for me. I wanted that structure because I wasn't confident in what I was doing, and I wanted to have you know, a very clear indication of what I was going to do, why I was going to do it, and how it was going to be done. But I think what's what's happened with me, and I'm not sure how common this actually is, I, I suspect it's quite common, is that the more time that you spend teaching and the more experience you get, the more you really want that kind of flexibility. So stretching it back the other way, I guess I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here, in that if, if, you know, I'm one sessional staff member and I'm one of 10 or more who are teaching in a particular subject because it's a large first-year subject... How do we ensure that kind of consistency if we start to make things more flexible for everybody, no matter how, exper- how much experience they've got or the fact that they're supposed to be doing something that's broadly equivalent across you know, 20 different tutorial groups? Right, it's potentially chaotic, right? Um, I think the question is, how high a tolerance do our institutions, our teachers and our students have for uncertainty? How prepared are we to say teaching is what happens when we get together and are all learning something, how can the university enable that to happen really well with the recognition that that's the teaching bit? That's where curriculum happens. It's very scary as a leader of learning and teaching to say, all right, I I will hand over control to people in the classroom. But, you know, I think the secret is they're already in control. They're the ones already driving the curriculum. That's the experience the students are having. As a leader, you can write the most beautiful strategy and the most incredible policies. You know, it's all on paper, absolutely beautiful. But you're doing the same thing that's happening at these lower levels where you're saying the curriculum's the piece of paper. If you acknowledge that the curriculum is the dialogue with the students and between the teachers and with all of those external forces coming into play, you're not in control of that anyway. So you need to have a very high tolerance for uncertainty and you need to relinquish control. And you need to say, I can't 
be in the driver's seat of curriculum. It's going to happen. So when we were doing this um, research, I had also been doing some research around sessional staff. And Marina Harvey, who's at UNSW now, had done some really interesting research with sessional staff, this is going back many years, where they talked about the curriculum as, and students talked about it like this, it's like being shackled to the back of a bus that's driven off at high speed. They had absolutely no control over where it was going or, or what the destination was and were absolutely, had to just put themselves, you know, at the control of, you know, this mad bus driver. Interesting. I, th- I think the other thing that comes into this, which sort of goes back to Molly's point, uh, in one of the other episodes of these podcasts, we spoke to Peter Goodyear, who, who talked about this myth that um, we understand and can co- sort of directly control the way that students learn. So there's a certain amount of the control that we are never going to have because ultimately it's up to the students to do the learning bit. So I can see that maybe it's buses being pulling them in two different directions at the same time. And absolutely, when you look at what we're trying to do with curriculum at the different levels, these things are competing. You know, we want our students to be global citizens, but we also want them to get a job. We want them to be critical thinkers, but not so critical that, you know, they question things that we don't want them to question. Um, You know, we, you know, it's like that little cartoon, you know, I I want you all to be creative, critical thinkers who do exactly what I say. And that's pretty much how we want it in the university. As much as you would like to design a curriculum for your own course, how, um, how there's still going to be a disconnect between the entire program and how higher education can do a better job of linking together all of these different you know, ongoing parts. Um, and when you're discussing about sessionals, I'm also thinking to my own personal experience, and I know that the lecturers so rarely actually train the tutors, that they give them a piece of paper and they say, this is the curriculum. So there's also a disconnect between, and the professional development that's allowed for students, they don't know what the the lecturer had intended. Do you think there's any way to resolve that? Look, I am absolutely an optimist when it comes to saying that if people get together and talk about things, you find a path through where everyone feels they've been part of a conversation. Um, I think when you don't even let people have the conversation in the first place, there's a lot of you know, it's an incredibly frustrating position to be a sessional staff member, for example, who feels they can't actually um, take control. You know, they might be working with assessment tasks they really don't see as um, affecting the sorts of outcomes that they're meant to. But um, similarly for students, if you're shackled at the back of the bus, you're not, you're clearly frustrated. You clearly want to take more control. You don't want to feel that there's this whole agenda going on that you're not privy to. So look, I really, I really do think involving people in conversations about why are we doing this, what, where are we going, um, what are the ways in which we could do that, and enabling flexibility within that to say, all right, we could do one of these options, this option or this option. Why, does, why are we always prescribing it will only look like this? You know around equity issues, we're meant to provide choice of assessment for students. We're meant to have alternatives somehow up our sleeve and where we divine that someone needs additional support, we go, oh look, here's one I prepared earlier, this is another option for you. So we are meant to have different modes of assessment available in everything we teach. 
what if we held these up as options? You know, let's talk about what you would most like to do this semester. That's, a, that's an interesting point because I guess as, as somebody who's done a lot of sort of negotiated assessment in the past, one thing that I've always found really challenging about doing that, and I, I agree with, with your point, is that ultimately you've got to try and make a statement at the end of it and say, okay, people have done completely different things here. The artefacts look entirely different. How do I know that the standard at which these things have reached is broadly equivalent, despite the fact that what the output might look like can be vastly different? What's, what's your sense of that? Yeah, look, it is a difficult question, and it it is relying a lot on the the subjective evaluation of the examiner. If you are not paying someone sufficiently to do that assessment, if you are not giving people sufficient time to think that through, it compounds the difficulty. Um, I don't think it's insurmountable. I mean, we we see students do creative pieces of work. I mean, PhDs often look quite different from one another. Um, we expect students to do something that aligns you know, what they've learnt with their practice in some way. And we are increasingly moving towards more creative and diverse ways of assessing students. So I don't think it's insurmountable, but it is something that needs support and resourcing. Yeah. I guess the, the other thing that comes up inevitably around all of these things is that, is that there's an obvious professional development component to this. So how much of this do you think, I notice in the article that you talk, uh, you bring up some of the more social theory type stuff that underpins curriculum theory, and you talk a bit about Habermas and all of those sorts of um, people, which I guess for me personally sort of coming from the background that I've come from where I was you know an academic teaching in psychology this was a vastly different way of of thinking about curriculum than was the way that I thought about anything in my discipline how much of this do you think is really just straight nuts and bolts do this you know make sure the assessment task designed this way uh, and how much of this is really people needing to understand a little bit more of that kind of curriculum theory is there is there a balance there or do we need to sort of sidestep you know, I guess that the nuts and bolts stuff is not something that we can move too far away from. But it, I guess what I'm trying to ask is how, how much of that curriculum theory do you think people will find mm. useful given that it's, for a lot of people, going to be a different way to what they think about mm. when they think about teaching in their discipline? I think what you're saying there comes to the heart, I guess, the question around academic development. Um, and we made the point in the paper that academic teachers rarely access the bodies of knowledge around educational theory and curriculum development and all of those sorts of things. And I think that continues to be the case. It's interesting for me, having moved from being in a central academic development unit and very much calling myself an academic developer, I now work in a faculty and I don't really use the term academic developer to describe what I'm doing anymore. It wasn't one that people well understood and it wasn't um, and it was not necessarily seen as someone supporting your teaching, it was someone imposing things on you. Now you must constructively align, for example. So I, you probably caught me at a difficult time in thinking about should everyone have an understanding of curriculum theory because my feelings are ambivalent on that point. Um, I like to think that reflective, critical, thoughtful, intelligent academics 
want to know a little bit about the field in which the scholarship around which in which they're practicing and I do think that's the case I see that in my colleagues they do want to know something about the scholarship of teaching they are hungry for a bit more information I don't think my university and many other universities are doing a very good job of feeding that hunger I think we do a lot of the stuff that is the nuts and bolts here's how you do it that works well when people are time poor and need to get stuff done but we're not doing so much of the okay when you've got some breathing room step back and think um, what is my orientation to teaching what do I value in activities for my students what do I want them to achieve from a higher education in my discipline I don't know that we always grant people that thinking time and that's the scholarly space and I'm trying to do a few things at my university to try and get people working within that a little bit more I think there's fairly simple things that universities can do I'm going to start a critical university studies reading group and that will just get people doing some readings. We only have to read six things a year. I thought that was doable. I've seen other universities that have them, but they meet fortnightly. And I think that's pushing it a bit in terms of how much you can read. Very ambitious and it's wonderful to have that. But I thought I'd try twice, you know, once every two months and see how it goes. So getting people to do some reading. My university is also moving more towards the Higher Education Academy fellowships. And I think that gets people thinking about their approach to teaching. I don't think it replaces professional development. I think it's a recognition, but it's not a professional development process. So one thing I'm mourning very much is the loss of a centralized learning and teaching unit at my university and the gap there in terms of professional development. That's something that um, other institutions are doing well, and I think it's a really important space. And as somebody who benefited from the professional development that was offered at your university, I can understand why. It was, it was really, really good. Sounds to me like what you're saying is academics are quite interested in improving their teaching, but that they don't really have the time and the resources um, to, to devote to improving it or learning more about their teaching practice. Do you think that has something to do with the way um, academics are promoted? Do you think we should emphasize teaching oh, more? Look, we've got, we've got a new promotions policy at my university. The first applications are due in soon. And this is a model that uses Boyer's um, scholarship and also includes a leadership and citizenship aspect. And looking at the policy, you can be promoted on the basis of your teaching at my university in a way people haven't necessarily been, tomorrow, uh, been previously. But whether the policy that looks lovely on paper changes the way in which promotions committees promote people remains to be seen. So I often think academics only have one way of evaluating the value of another academic and that's to look at their research. And academics are often frequently appointed and promoted on the basis of their research, even if that's not necessarily relevant to their job. So we now have scholarly teaching fellow positions. These are level A, 80% teaching load continuing positions. These were an attempt to move away from entrenched casualization to say, you know, we want to give you the benefits that come with being a continuing staff member and, you know, recognize that and support that. And they are positions from which you can be promoted. But a lot of these 80% 
teaching staff members were appointed because of their research promise or their research potential, even though that wasn't what they were doing. So I do think universities have a bit of a problem there. It requires a big shift in practice. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens around changing. And I think as we're starting to have more teaching-focused positions, we will need to look more carefully at promotions policies and how well... um, how well those are being enacted. But I would say one thing that's a general trend around people who are academic development type people, and that is that a lot of these positions are increasingly professional staff positions rather than academic staff positions. And I think this is um, dangerous in terms of making a space for that scholarship of learning and teaching that I was talking about earlier because I think if you want people to be scholarly and you need you need professional development that promotes scholarship and scholarship is a part of an academic's role. Yeah, so I think that's an important point um, and going, going back a step to what you were just talking about in terms of um, promotion and, and those sorts of things I guess one of the challenges is always that in research, it's relatively straightforward, right? You've got this many, you know, this much grant money. You've got this many papers, and right, you know, you've got all your a, metrics, right? Your H index. Whereas when we think about the teaching side of it, that's always been really challenging. And something that we've written about is mm-hmm. problems around student evaluations and how um, those can tend to drive what we're doing in teaching in the wrong directions. And we, you know, we don't want to challenge students because we might piss them off, and mm-hmm. you know, all of these sorts of things. So, uh, where where do you see that going? I mean, mm-hmm. we're seeing a growth in peer review. But if we're thinking about people doing really good things in their curriculum design, how do you see that sort of captured so that people can go, all right, I'm doing some really neat stuff? So that's a really good question. And I'm glad you mentioned peer review because that's another part of my job right now. I've been given the task of implementing compulsory peer review across an entire faculty. Um, And I'm trying to make it something that I've got representatives from each department. You know, being an academic, I've said, hey, let's form a working party. So we're doing that. Um, but it's something that's going to be very much based on collegial conversations and the model we've developed for it has three levels and the first level is around iLearn practices so that's their online, we use Moodle their practices um, in their online teaching and we've developed a thing called Commons so everyone can see everyone else's units, online units and so we will provide some templates and things to that have been developed as part of OLT projects to do peer review at that level. We then have peer review of curriculum practices level and that is, it does include teaching strategies but it also includes the things that I've said are just the bits of paper but it also includes things around um, purposive curriculum. So if you want um, your students to have undergraduate research skills that's the sort of level at which you peer review that sort of stuff. And then the final one is more what we think of as peer observation of teaching. And we are doing some review of that as well. So that is one way there will be whole conversations happening where you have evidence of what you've done that are collegial and that are not intended to focus on performance at all, that are focused on what's going well here, what can we do more of, and talking about it in teams. So this operates at both a unit level and a program level. Um, In terms of how people recognition for the excellent stuff people are doing, I often think that's a problem because I think so many teachers I know do fantastic stuff in the classroom almost despite their institutions. 
And I think they see it and I think their students see it, but they don't always talk about it with other colleagues. So the point of getting peer review and getting people to talk to each other about their teaching is a way of starting that process of recognising excellent practice. That, um, I think that there's a nice segue back to your kind of last point about the scholarship side of it. So do you think, is your sense from a lot of those people that they're doing a lot of these things sort of intuitively that they're, they're excellent teachers despite not necessarily having a lot of expertise in higher education? So I'm thinking of Caroline Craver's, you know, um, three categories of teaching excellence, um, teaching expertise, and then scholarly teaching. Do, do you think that there's something in there that we've got, you know, potentially a lot of people who are doing excellent stuff but have absolutely no idea how to frame it or how to actually explain it or how to draw on evidence to say, oh, you know, this is the reason why we think that this is working? Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? Yeah, so we do have a whole lot of people who don't have a language to describe what they're doing. And at the points in which they need to get that language, say when they're applying for another job or they want to be recognised in some way through promotion or um, fellowship of the Higher Education Academy or something like that, they start looking for that language. I think there are always people who will look for scholarly um, work in, in, in relation to their practice. Although I would say that, um, you know, with sessional staff, you're not providing, well, we are not providing the recognition and reward necessarily, so they don't have necessarily that same impetus to seek that out. Mm. And I think if you can start to have ways in which scholarly teaching is embedded in our practice, so I do some things now where I do um, community of practice groups, and we start with fairly simple stuff. But things like the teaching perspectives inventory, everyone does that and they think, you know, um, what is my orientation to teaching? And it's a useful way of starting to develop a language about why you do what you do and the things that you do instinctively or because you were taught that way and you responded well to it, you can start thinking about and you can think about in relation to students who are not like you, for example. What do you think the role of technology might have in bringing people together as far as building communities of practice or supporting teachers? Because I think the, you know, the hot phrase nowadays is all about flexible options and maybe someone wants to do professional development but they don't have time, nine to five. So what do you think technology might bring to it? Yeah, look, I think the technology one's really interesting because I think that's where this paper dated, right? Where we talked about, you know, teaching with the internet. <laughs> it's like, oh dear. <laughs> but, um... Look, I, I really like teaching online and I really, I enjoy, for example, Twitch, using Twitter as a professional learning um, space. And so I, I really like that stuff. I don't think it replaces being face-to-face. -face. I think it adds a really nice additional dimension to it. And I've had very good teaching and learning experiences that have been entirely online. But they've also, for me, it's important that they feel embodied in some way and that they feel personal. So one thing I was talking with a colleague about her, her work and one of the things she does with feedback to ensure she has time is record to, you know, do all her marking is record a quick voice memo. So, you know, Molly, in this essay, I really liked how you blah, blah, blah. And the students get that. It takes her, you know, 10 seconds to say that, but it feels personal. So I think, I think what you want to do in online spaces is also have that connection at the level of the individual. And it's 
relatively small things that will do that. But, you know, on Twitter, I feel like a person. You know, I feel that people interact with me in really personally engaging ways and ways that are, you know, in, I thrive in that space. So, and, you know, on a blog now, I'm really enjoying the sorts of engagement I get with people and the conversations that that generates. And they generate face-to-face conversations too. But I think it's very much about that sense of making sure people feel that they are embodied people interacting with other embodied people. Well, hopefully podcasts can do a bit of that as well, <laughs> right? <laughs> so going back to that that idea, I mean, you've, you've mentioned that the that things have changed a little bit, in the, you know, since the paper came out. So in there you actually talked a little bit about this idea of um, fashions in mm. curriculum so we've seen a lot happen in that time we've seen MOOCs we've seen flipped classes we've seen you know various other technology or not technology driven things um, what's your sense of where we are in terms of the fashions that we're seeing now I mean uh, which ones of those do you feel are kind of really faddish and will mm. possibly disappear if we were to have this discussion again in another 10 years and which ones of them are things that you think oh yeah this is something that's really going to take off and is really going to um, help us think about what we're doing in curriculum into the future I mean that's a tricky question because it does involve a bit of reading the tea leaves and saying um, you know here's what I predict for the future so I will give you a couple of predictions for the future that kind of I guess will segue into answering that question but a couple of things that I think are going to happen more in higher education is there's going to be more engagement with students' networks. We're not going to only talk to students about student work anymore. We are going to start to talk to their families, for instance, their parents who might be footing the bill, their employers if they've already got work, um, better communication with host supervisors in work-integrated learning, and all of these sorts of things. And one of the reasons I say that is because I I have two children, one in primary school and one in preschool, and I am far more involved in conversations with their teachers now than I believe my parents were when I was at school. So with my daughter at primary school, we have um, parent-teacher interviews every six months. With the one at preschool, we have them every three months, so we have four a year. And before people start thinking, oh, well, you know, that's preschool and primary school, you know, things are very different. I actually think a lot of the things we're doing start to impact across the different levels of education. And I think Graduate Attributes is a really good example of that. So I've talked a bit about those at a university level. My daughter's school recently released a list of Graduate Attributes and they will be critical thinkers and global citizens. You know, it was all very familiar. And then my son's preschool have released you know, a statement around how they want the children to develop as global citizens and critical thinkers. So I think we are starting to use more of the same language. I mean, when this paper was written, we didn't really talk about curriculum in higher education. It's now the bread and butter of most academics' work. You know, they know what the curriculum is and they know what they need to do. It's not, it's no longer a vexing question where someone says, curriculum, I'm never going to use that word. You don't have a choice. So my prediction for the future is we're going to start using some of the lessons we've learned at other levels of education into higher education. Uh, I think what's happening in technologies at schools is really exciting and often far more integrated into day-to-day practice of schooling than it is in higher education. Um, that said, I am hoping there will be a bit of a, you know, a bit of a love for the past. I'm hoping that we don't do away with lectures altogether. That's something that's 
imminent at a lot of institutions, including my own. And I think if we do decide to get rid of lectures entirely, I'm going to set up a lecture series so that we can all have that process of that really wonderful experience of deeply listening to someone talk about something they're passionate about and immersing ourselves in listening. And I think podcasts do a bit of that, but I think that you know, making a space for listening as work and not just saying students are passive when they're there, to say, you know, deep listening and thinking is not passive. Um, so that's the sort of stuff I would want to hope that there's a little bit of resistance. I think what I most want is that academics start to turn a critical eye towards curriculum and towards change in higher education and towards the sorts of trends and they start to interrogate those with much the same questions we've always asked. What is the purpose of higher education? What are students learning? What is the role of a teacher? Which I guess, and all of those things are relatively dynamic given that you know, we're in a world that is constantly changing because of access to information and automation and all of these other sorts of things. So yeah, some, some interesting ideas in there. I, I like the one about the, the lecture. I always think that there's, there's going to be a space for us to see expert knowledge enacted in some way, uh, even if it's somebody talking through something in, in a venue like that. I mean, you know, for a lot of us, and you know, I'm, I've done this many times, you, you will pay good money to go and see somebody who's really good at giving a lecture. That doesn't mean that it's for everybody. So I think one of the things for me is that it's always a little bit about, as an individual teacher, we need to also make decisions about what works best for us. And often we don't necessarily systematically include our, ourselves as part of the situation that we're dealing with. So if I'm not really very good at delivering lectures, then maybe I should think about doing something slightly different so that I'm getting the best of my time and the students are getting the best of, of that situation that we can... Or maybe we use the expertise of different groups within a teaching team. So, you know, so-and-so is awesome at lecturing. This other person uses the active learning space really well. You know, this person doesn't know how to turn on the computer, but, you know, this other person, but, you know, does some great stuff with post-it notes. You know, can we start looking at how teaching teams work together to teach that way and actually say, you know, we don't all have to be really good at everything. We can showcase what this particular particular teacher is really good at. You know, and there's... There's people who can do chalk and talk stuff and you're blown away. There's people who, you know, um, talk through something that some other people would make sound really dry and you're like, you know, that's fantastic. So there is a space for that, but I think we, we harness each other's strengths is the best way to go. And adding to the confusion, as you've mentioned before, is uh, including not only parents but also future employers in the conversation. Uh, do you think teachers will be receptive of someone coming in from KPMG or coming in from a major engineering company and saying, I want graduates who have these uh, skills? Do you think people would be interested in that or do you think that would cause issues? I mean, I think there are disciplinary differences there. I think there's a lot of disciplines where they already do that. Um, and I think there's, there's disciplines where they may say, well, we don't necessarily need that or want that. But the reality is that I think you've got to consider the many different places that your students will be going. 
I also think that it's important if you include employers as part of the conversation that they realise there is another aspect to it that they're not thinking about necessarily. So um, if you're talking about your degree in ancient history, for example, or your degree in philosophy, and as someone whose um, you know, undergraduate degree was in English literature, I think, you know, I, I have really, I think the humanities and the arts is a really important place for for study, you know, but um, I guess I'm hesitant because I'm concerned that I'm concerned that the push towards employability is framing higher education in particular ways, and we're not putting the critical thinking behind that. Like, is this the only way in which we are conceiving the purpose of a higher education? What else is a higher education good for? And what other imperatives are there to study? So Chris Russ talked about the the economic argument for higher education is just not really adding up. You know, students aren't getting value for money and getting a job that's making the financial investment worthwhile. But are there some other outcomes that are that do make it of value? And I mean, I'm also conscious that this is a really difficult argument to have because if you're not a part of the economic system, are you, you know, is it to your own detriment? So I still think universities are very much in a space where we are trying to hold competing values and priorities simultaneously. We are kind trying to have it all a bit at the moment. I don't think I necessarily share the gloomy view of higher education and these sorts of apocalyptic visions of how no one will need to go to university because you can just do it all yourself. I actually think there is a really strong value for the collegial nature of university and for the for the scholarly structure of university. But those are they are difficult questions because universities need to articulate that more clearly. You know, what are we for? Yeah, which I think for me what tends to put a lot of this stuff into perspective is this idea of the useless class. I don't know if you've heard any of these sorts of things and there are, you know, there are actually parts of the world where there are serious discussions now about this idea of a universal basic wage and these sorts of things. So it, it seems to me that we're already starting to have this narrative around, okay, a lot of stuff is really going to be automated. And, you know, again, we've heard today uh, that, you know, lawyers are going to be potentially automated in the not too distant future. So it, to me, it seems more like this employability thing is not necessarily... A, a really nice fit with that I mean maybe it never was but I, I can't quite see when you've got people on, on one hand saying there's going to be a lot of people who just simply won't find work anywhere and that we need to introduce a universal basic wage or, or start thinking about it and on the other hand saying oh yeah, yeah students come to university and we've got to make sure that they're employable at the end of it I mean what does employable even mean in 2060s you know that's that's when the students that we're com- seeing coming into university you know they're still going to be supposedly in the workforce in the 2060s what's it even going to look like then you know that always that always confuses me about how those things fit together yeah and the the close tie between employability and employment and I don't know that we always separate those out well and we have um you know I always think about you know say a global financial crisis and what universities can do then if no one's getting a job you know if your graduates are not getting jobs because there are no jobs how do you how can you define your worth if you've, you know, tied yourself to the employability wagon? Because, you know, without jobs, 
your graduates won't be employable because there's no employment, right? So there are, I have read some really interesting scholarly work around employability versus employment. I'm not yet entirely convinced that at the level in which we talk about it at uni, we mean different things. I get they're different and they can mean different things, but it's coming back to that idea of you know, scholarly thinking about something. I don't think the general usage is that they mean different things yet, especially when, as institutions, we measure employability by you know, graduate destinations. Yeah, which is problematic for a bunch of different reasons, right? So I realise that we've been talking for quite some time. Um, what, I, what I've done a couple of times in, you know, in, in other episodes is that we've asked people you know, what they're excited about or what, what they see in the near future. That, so we can sort of end on a positive kind of note, right? So is there anything that you're particularly excited about at the moment, whether it's related to curriculum or not? You know, is yeah, it, what, what's, what gets you up in the morning? I, and gets you excited I am an this? optimist <laughs> about higher education. You know, and, um, so I mentioned, did I mention I started a blog, The Slow Academic? And so the re- this, I started this blog because I wanted to start thinking about that space for being a critical voice, for being um, someone who's reflective and thinks about things. And as things are happening, instead of just going, huh, that's an interesting thought I've just had, finding some way to actually articulate those and link things together. And I've been having some really interesting conversations with people and the really... It really is about academic life as a whole. So it's not just about curriculum, but it is part of being an individual within a system and trying to make sense of the fact that you've got to hold um, contradictory things in mind simultaneously. You know, it's like that idea of work-life balance. I mean, there is no balance. You don't have your work and then your life. You only get one, one thing. And, (laughs) you know... um, so your work life, it's, you know, it's your life work or whatever. Does that make sense? <laughs> so I really wanted to make a space for thinking about that and having conversations with people because, and articulating my own thoughts. So what I'm really excited about at the moment is just the way in which blogging and thinking has also opened me up to more ideas of here are things I might do within my university to make space for that, like having a reading group, like starting a community of practice around teaching focused staff members and, you know, just simple ideas that involve people getting together and talking, whether it's face-to-face or on Zoom. We do quite a lot of that as well. And you can have good discussions about reading in that sort of space too. So those are things I'm really excited about at the moment. More talking with people, more thinking about things, and more asking difficult questions. Oh, I like that. Nice positive note to end on too. So thank you, Agnes. Thank you for taking the time out to chat with us. It's been great, as always. (laughs) 